1: Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS, I'm Shona. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm recording on site this weekend at CancerCon taking place in Denver, Colorado. Here with me today is Dawn Scott, and we will be chatting a little bit about her journey as a survivor, a mother, and a wife. So thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much
1: for having me, it's quite the honor. (laughs) So for those who don't know, CancerCon is an event held every year by an organization called Stupid Cancer, and they provide support to young adults who are currently diagnosed with cancer or who are cancer survivors. And we here at LLS attend this conference every year. About 40% of CancerCon attendees are blood cancer survivors. So we come here to provide resources and talk to patients in real time. So why do you believe that CancerCon is such an important event for young adults?
0: To be honest, it saved my life. And I say that metaphorically, but as well as literally. I was diagnosed in 1998, but my first, which was obviously well before the organization began, but the first OMG event, which is the predecessor to CancerCon, was in 2012. And my first husband had just walked out on me and I was really struggling and the only thing that I had really set my sights on was fundraising, it was fundraising to go to OMG. And even though I didn't really know anyone, mm-hmm. it was something that I made a priority to still get on the plane and go. And so when I say it saved my life, it, I mean it in that it provided resources, it provided a focus point where I could go and meet with other people. I didn't feel like an outsider, even though I didn't know anyone. I was immediately accepted.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh. It really gave me a purpose. It reminded me of what I had overcome in my cancer journey and that what I was dealing with at the end of that marriage was would be a blip on the screen in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. So CancerCon is just such a resource for caregivers, for fighters, for survivors, to remind themselves that there are resources out there and that they're never alone.
1: And there's people that understand what you're going through. Exactly. And yeah. that those people are there 24-7 if
0: you want them to be.
1: So let's talk a little bit about your diagnosis and your journey as a survivor. So when you were diagnosed, what was going on during that time? I was actually
0: a junior in college. It was my spring semester of 1998. and. I noticed my arm was swelling, my right arm. I had a bunch of pain and it gradually was becoming more and more painful and I had written it off as playing intramural volleyball, but one morning I woke up and my hand was so swollen I couldn't close my hand and my mom gets superficial blood clots in her legs. So I knew, it was like a little voice inside. I knew that this was something big. Mm -hmm. And so I went to urgent care who diagnosed me with multiple blood clots and sent me immediately to the hospital to be admitted. And it was during that really roughly three-week admission time that I discovered that I had cancer.
1: So what was the initial diagnosis then? The initial thing I was told
0: after my biopsy was, You have cancer, we have no idea what kind. (laughs) It was something that pathology lab at the hospital I was at here in Colorado had never seen. My surgeon at the time said, I really need to send this out to a variety of folks and see what comes back. And about three weeks later, I had a follow up appointment and he had talked to a woman at the University of Michigan named Dr. Sharon Weiss, who actually was the one that discovered my cancer. Mm And the name of my cancer is epithelioid hemangioendothelioma.
1: That's a mouthful.
0: It's a mouthful. It's definitely a spelling (laughs) change. So we've come to learn to call it EHE for Mm. short. EHE. Yes. So what was treatment like? Treatment was sort of a shot in the dark, honestly, initially. So many oncologists in Colorado didn't want to treat me because they didn't know... Anything about this particular soft tissue sarcoma. It was it's really rare at the at the point I was diagnosed. I was told by the CDC that I was one of 16 people
1: 16. in the US.
0: Yeah, very, wow. very rare. And so the protocol was really unknown. I found a doctor here in Fort Collins and she sent me on to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I saw a sarcoma specialist there and I had had an initial surgery where they split my sternum and took out the portion of the vein that the tumor was actually had grown completely inside of a vein in my chest. And that was why I was having blood clots because everything was backing up. And so they did a vein graft and removed that section and took out my first rib and took out a bunch of my collarbone. Problem was during one of my procedures, the radiologist thought that what we now know was tumor was a blood clot, and mm-hmm. he went to blow it up with a balloon with an angioplasty to break up this clot. Except it wasn't a clot, it was the tumor. Mm-hmm. So it immediately seeded my lungs, and so now I have about 20 tumors bilaterally mm-hmm. in my lungs. But after surgery, I did four months of intense, intense chemotherapy. And at that point, made a decision that we would wait and watch. Mm -hmm. they didn't shrink but it didn't grow either and so I decided after talking with a number of doctors that I wanted to wait and see how things progressed and I have been luckily stable since September of 1998 that's almost 21 years yeah just a little (laughs) over
1: and yeah it'll be coming up on 21 years in September wow that's incredible thank you (laughs) So during this whole process of going through treatment, was the topic of fertility ever introduced to you? And if so, who initiated that?
0: It was introduced, and that was such a novel thing, I know now, because even doctors today don't adequately discuss fertility issues. But my oncologist spoke to me, and at the time, I was engaged with a gentleman I had been with for two years, and she said, you know, the heaviness, the heavy-duty nature of this chemotherapy is going to make you infertile. It Mm. will put you into chemical menopause, and we need to talk about fertility issues now before we start treatment. And so she had my fiancé and I meet with a fertility specialist and talk a little bit about what our options were at that point. What were your options presented to you? Unfortunately, at that point, it was fairly limited. They weren't doing a whole lot of... They were doing egg embryo freezing. That was a possibility, but just simple egg retrieval and egg freezing was not very viable at that point, Mm -hmm. like it is now. And the concern that the fertility specialist had that I saw was because Mike and I weren't married, if we were to create a child together via... The IVF process at that point, who would own that? Sounds so crass, but who would <laughs> own the child or who would own the embryo?
1: The legal, legal,
0: guardianship, legal ramifications, right. yes, okay. since we weren't married. And so he was hesitant to proceed with that. And honestly, my doctor, Dr. Scott, said, We really don't have time. We mm-hmm. need to get you going right now on chemo. So at least I knew at that point that my fertility was likely going to be compromised and was trying to manage it. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think this is an important conversation that everybody needs to have
0: when they're going through something like this? I think it's critical. Yeah. I think no matter what age, you know, anytime your potential of childbearing age or as a peds patient that is looking down the road, I think it's a necessary conversation because unless you already have kids having children someday may not be the first thing on your mind when you're trying to survive right and as a result I think not having that conversation really comes back to harm people
1: in the end so let's talk a little bit about the opportunity that you decided to pursue sure
0: I actually Kind of did a wide range, (laughs) a little bit of everything. Initially, I've been able to get pregnant, which was a surprise to everyone. My fertility did return. We didn't know how compromised. But unfortunately, I've had six miscarriages. I can't make it out of the first trimester. And so, in part, while we were trying to family build through natural means, we were also fostering children We had a a little girl that we had from nine months old until she was two and a half. And uh, at that point, she was returned to her family, and that was Mm gut-wrenching. We had never, you know, you don't go into foster care thinking that this child is going to be mine. You go in knowing that the child will likely be returned to his or her family once they are able to correct the issues or be returned to another member of the family which is called kinship care Mm -hmm. they like to have kids placed with family first if possible but we had really been encouraged early on by our social workers that that this child might become ours that we might foster Mm -hmm. to adopt and so when that ended it was devastating i imagine it was devastating and we had actually kind of decided just to give up for a while and then out of the blue a friend of mine contacted me and said I have a young birth mom, soon to be birth mom, who really wants to adopt and I'd really like for you guys to meet her and see if you might be the right family for her. And so ultimately that's how our son Logan
1: came about. And
0: how old is Logan now? He is almost 20 months. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's been a blessing. Yeah. He is our miracle.
1: So when you were going through the process of adopting Logan, what was that process like?
0: We were actually very lucky in that we had a private adoption. So we worked just with one attorney who represented, she represented all of us, essentially. She drafted the contract and drafted the other materials that we needed. And we went through the legal process that we needed to with the court. So it was a very simplified process. One of the other things we had looked at prior to that is doing an agency adoption. And you can do that at the national level mm-hmm. with larger entities, or you can look at your state entities. State agency adoptions usually are less expensive mm-hmm. than federal or national ones. It's a bit of a catch-22. It's much more expensive to go with uh, agency adoption. Mm-hmm but they do all the work versus doing a private adoption where it's really just on the birth family, that adoptive family, and then the attorney who's, you know, and then we all go to court. So both have pros and cons, but ours ended up being the private adoption route, and that worked well for our particular situation.
1: Is there anything else that you learned? I mean, this is such great information. You know, is there anything else that you learned during this process that perhaps other people should think about or consider if they're thinking about going through that process?
0: Absolutely. There's several resources,
1: and a big thing when
0: people are looking at family building outside of traditional, you know, IVF or traditional means if your fertility isn't compromised is to really think about, okay, is it important to me to have an infant? or am I okay having older children? There's so many kids called uh, waiting children that are in the foster care system whose parental rights have already been terminated or um, are in the process of being terminated that just want to come to a loving home. And that's typically not very expensive because the state covers a lot of the placement fees and a lot of the adoption coverages simply because They want children to find a home. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing to really think about. Does it have to be an infant? If folks really do want to have an infant, one of the suggestions I would do would be to write a beautiful, heartfelt letter and send it out to obstetricians everywhere across the country and explain your situation. Because a lot of times... That's how those private adoptions happen, is the OBGYN comes across a patient who says, I really want to to give my child up for adoption, but I don't know that I want to go through all of the stress and pressure mm-hmm. of an agency adoption. And so if that OB has your letter that says, you know, this is my history, this is, you know, we want to f- build a family, we're open, please contact us, that sticks in their brain.
1: Yeah, Um, And it seems so simple. I would have never thought that it's even possible to do that, that that's the thing you can do. Yeah.
0: I had never thought of it really either until uh, actually my gynecologist, who used to be an obstetrician, talked a lot about how he facilitated a lot of adoptions when he was serving as an obstetrician because he did have young women come in and say, I I just, I'm not ready to parent now, Mm -hmm. but I do want to place the child with the loving family. And it's a lot more personal connection than going through the entire agency. You know, you get your name placed in a book or online, and you hope someone picks you.
1: And that process can take a lot of time, It right? can.
0: It can. We When we checked in with our state agency back in 2017, early 2017, they were saying that they had families who would be waiting up to three to four years. So we would have been waiting you know, probably four to five years to be placed, versus going with a national agency, they typically can place, usually is within a year, that you can have an adoption occur, but the, it's more expensive than a private adoption. So it sort of just depends on what your personal situation is and what your personal requests for having a family are, and, you know, what they look like to you and your partner.
1: So this whole journey, both being diagnosed at a young age when you are in college, all the way through infertility and adoption, how has this kind of redefined your life and who you are? And <laughs> I
0: always say that my cancer is a catch-22, but I would not change my outcome. I would not change my history. It's not been easy. It's certainly... As I get older, thankfully, I'm glad to get older. I never never dislike having a birthday come around because it means I've survived another year. But it also comes with challenges, late-term effects from treatment that I'm not always prepared to face. Obviously, the fertility piece was the most painful Mm -hmm. that I've dealt with. But the ability to work with others, the ability to lend a helping hand for those that might be just diagnosed or diagnosed and not sure what direction to go in has been invaluable and it's really taught me a lot about my own self and my own strength and what I can do and you know when I was a kid I used to cry once a year when I had my blood drawn for (laughs) thyroid testing and now I just laugh because you know that's
1: just so ludicrous
0: in comparison so it's given me
1: a better perspective on life than I think I ever would have had and you know like we were saying before you say coming here to CancerCon and seeing everyone who finally feel like they're not alone that they have someone that they can relate to and I'm sure being able to provide your experience to people who are currently going through this must be so rewarding and valuable to you yeah
0: it is it helps me feel less guilty because honestly One of the biggest things I struggle with is survivor's guilt, and I think every survivor deals with that. Mm -hmm. You wonder why you get to live when so many of the ones that you've come to love and know do not. And so that's part of why I'm so passionate about Mm -hmm. using my experiences and my knowledge to reach out. And because when I was first diagnosed, I had a young woman reach out to me, and she became my mentor and she became the person that guided me through some of the worst times. She was there, and although she passed away in 2011 from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, she will always have a special place in my in my life for encouraging me to mentor others like she mentored me.
1: So if there's, you know, someone at home listening right now, and they could benefit from some of your wisdom, what would you tell them? What, what kind of things do you think aren't maybe addressed that people need to hear?
0: I think people are very, oftentimes, very ashamed of their di- diagnosis. And everyone needs to handle things the way that they're most comfortable, obviously. But I think that there's something, for me, it's been very freeing to be able to be completely open with people about my experiences it's a way to know that people aren't alone and literally you know you strike up a conversation with someone because cancer touches everyone it touches all of us and knowing that someone has been through that experience has survived that experience is oftentimes feels i think like a lifeline when everything around you feels like it's going down my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer a year after i was diagnosed With my cancer and I was able to navigate treatment for her Mm. that I would not have been able to do otherwise so parting words I guess just be strong in yourself don't be afraid to reach out to others because there are others that are going through exactly what you're facing and they want to be there and support you and there is a light at the end of the tunnel even though sometimes it's really hard to see
1: well thank you so much for shedding light on all of that I'm glad you mentioned survivor's guilt. Yeah, so survivor's guilt is something that has actually been coming up over and over this weekend. We touched on it in our blood cancer session, and we actually recorded an an entire podcast yesterday just on survivor's guilt. So listeners, you can check out this podcast on thebloodline.org. And while you're at it, please check out all of our other resources as well on the LLS website. So for example, we have publications available for all types of blood cancer, and we do in fact have a fertility fact sheet if you would like to learn more after listening to this podcast. We have online chats, which are moderated by an oncology social worker, and we also have an online patient support forum called LLS Community, which allows you to join groups based on your disease subtypes or other areas of interest, and then you can chat online with other patients or caregivers who are going through the same things as you. Along the same lines, we do have in-person support groups, so be sure to check out what we may be offering in your area. And then finally, you can always call one of our information specialists, and they're available to walk you through the trickier aspects of diagnosis, such as financial assistance, accessing resources, or just talking you through your treatment and survivorship journey. And all of this can be found on our website at LLS.org, so please check us out. And Dawn, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really great conversation, a really great episode. So I'm sure all of our listeners at home appreciate you taking the time today to speak with us.
0: Thank you so much for allowing me to share. And if anyone listening has questions or wants to reach out or just needs someone that they know they can text in the middle of the night, please don't hesitate to reach out and and ask for my contact information because I'm more than happy to share.
1: Well, we appreciate that so much.
0: Thank you. This has been a pleasure.